There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, listeners. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. It's great to have you with us again. And it's great to have entrepreneur and philanthropist Eric Canonico with us for the entire podcast today. Eric is the president, CEO, and chairman of the board of a very unique nonprofit organization, the Motopara Foundation. Eric, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thank you, Chris. Welcome, uh, welcome, <laughs> welcome to my hotel. Welcome to the show, exactly. It's, all, it's everyone's show. It's everyone's show. You know, so Eric, with, with most guests, you know, at this point, I would open with a brief bio introduction, but you know, given your very unique background, I just don't think I could do your, your life story justice. Would you mind just briefly <laughs> sharing with our listeners uh, a little bit about who and what you are? Uh, well, we only have an hour, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's why I said brief. Exactly. Um, born and raised in Washington, D.C., 52 years old. Um, I've had many different careers and life experiences, um, everything from being in the entertainment industry in L.A., uh, to having uh, uh, a franchise uh, in the construction industry uh, that we developed and, uh, and several others, a software hardware development company. Um, but um, basically grew up in uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, area in Northern Virginia. Uh, was very blessed and uh, lucky enough to have, uh, you know, um, parents that, uh, that uh, made it real kept it real. <laughs> My dad was a West Point grad, so uh, that'll give you any indication on how That's, life that might sums have been. it up. Yeah. My younger brother, who's 12 years younger than me, he got away with a lot more. A lot, I, I don't know if he got away with a lot more, but he got um, less trouble. <laughs> My father says that uh, I wore him and my mother out. <laughs> the <laughs> so, test drive. <laughs> yes, exactly. I was uh, apparently a bit of a handful growing up. So, uh, but um, no, I mean, uh, I uh, had various different businesses uh, growing up. Um, some successful, uh, some of them failures. Uh, where you uh, fail, you uh, you learn. Um, and uh, you you pick yourself up and you move to the next venture, um, and hopefully you're smart enough to uh, surround yourself with individuals that uh, help you uh, achieve your goals. Uh, and I've been lucky enough to do that uh, several times in my life, um, and uh, I'm very proud to be surrounded by uh, individuals from Motopara uh, Foundation that uh, come from all, all walks of life, uh, various different industries, um, all experts in their field um, and uh, the various fields. And um, I'm just very lucky uh, to have these people. And we're, we're always adding new uh, additional team members. Uh, and uh, every week and every month is, uh, is, uh, it makes me proud to be a part of this organization because uh, we, get to, we get to have a lot of unique individuals from around the world come apart and, uh, and help with our mission. So, um, you know, I was, uh, let's see here. Um, do you want me to get into the cancer stuff? No, or? We'll, we'll get into that. Oh, okay. So, All right. So, that was my reset button. Perfect. So. Perfect. Well, you mentioned the Motopara Foundation, which we'll talk about as well. But, you know, you briefly talked about your father. Uh, he's a graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point. Served right. our country both on active duty and in the Army Reserves. 
He also has 47 years of experience in construction and land development projects. You said that your yep. dad is one of your greatest influences. Could you share with our yeah, listeners what way he influenced don't, you? Don't tell him. <laughs> <laughs> we'll send him a link to the show if he's not listening now. Right, exactly. Uh, he is. Uh, my mother and my father, both, uh, are probably the two most influential individuals I've had in my entire life. Uh, that, and oddly enough, my son. Um, so it sounded horrible the way I just said it, but, but uh, he taught me a lot as well. Uh, and he continues to, to impress and, and, uh, and uh, inspire me um, on a daily basis. So, but my, the two most uh, are, are my mother and my father. Um, uh, I was, uh, I was uh, very lucky and very blessed to have uh, my mother um, in the early stages of my life as a single mother, a single parent who was a uh, very young age in Washington, D.C. Uh, by herself um, that uh, in the 60s was not the most uh, um, accepted uh, practice of having a child uh, on your own. Um, and she did it, uh, and she did it very well. Um, and then she met my father, uh, and he adopted me. And uh, I took his last name. And from that point on, he's been a, a, a very big influence in, in everything. Uh, sometimes when I speak to my son and growing up, when he was growing up, he's 19 now, I'll say something. And I remember, you know, vividly, sometimes I'll say exactly what my father would have said to me. And I just cringe <laughs> because I go, oh, he got me again, <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, back He's just, he's pretty amazing uh, human being. And so, so is my mother. My mother's um, just an actual stellar human being. So, Well, obviously many successful people have that strong role model or role models in your case, but they also have an inflection point or, you know, some people call it a watershed moment in their lives. You've had both. Not only has your, your father and your mother had a tremendous positive influence for you, but you've also had that inflection point in 2004 when you were diagnosed with leukemia and then beat that dreaded disease. How did that experience change your life or your perspective, your, your mission and goals? Well, I was a bit of a jerk before. <laughs> Just ask my mom and dad. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, uh, prior to that reset button, I was very much um, focused on money, um, business success, um, and at the detriment of, of some key things in my life that I, that I needed to have, uh, I needed to check myself, let's say, <clears throat> and it was, uh, excuse me, it was, uh, I, I always say that I was blessed, um, to actually, uh, most people would not think that way, but I was blessed to actually be diagnosed with, uh, uh the equivalent of stage four leukemia, AML, uh, given, uh, told by uh, Dr. David Wright, who is an amazing doctor, just absolutely amazing uh, oncologist, hematologist. Um, I mean, I remember um, he's got a Southern draw, like, and I actually joked with him and used to call him Pyle, like Gomer Pyle, because he was six something tall, thin build, just always a smile on his face. And when he sat there and told me that, you know, I was, I was negotiating with him when he told me. That, you know, I was like, well, I don't have time for this. I've got other things that I'm working on that uh, I need about 90 days to put everything in place. And he's like, you don't have 90 days. And I said, all right, well, 
let's let's work with a month. Give me a give me a month. And he's like, you don't have a month. I said, all right, a few weeks. And I, I remember him saying, you don't have three weeks. He says, if we don't get into this right now, um, and he goes, and I can't, I can't give you any guarantees it's going to work, but um, we need to be aggressive in this, and we need to start right now. And that was a that was an eye opener. Um, most people uh, uh, are not told that they have less than three weeks to live. Um, generally, cancer. What I've been told is cancer patients generally have you know in in most cases extended periods. Uh, you know, maybe a month, two months, three year, whatever. But <clears throat> when you're counting down on weeks and days, it's uh, it's an eye opener. And um, I remember uh, I remember asking him. I said, well. You know how how sure are you about this? <laughs> and he said, and I remember I was laying in bed in the hospital bed, and and he and I are just alone in the room, and he's sitting on a chair, and he's kind of like hunched over, and and kind of like leaning forward, and and talking to me, and he said, uh, he goes, well, I bet the farm, and my family has a farm, so <laughs> I bet it. Pretty sure. <laughs> So I'm pretty sure. So, uh, and lo and behold, we had the biopsy, bone marrow biopsy, and it was confirmed. And then uh, I spent uh, July 4th in a hospital bed looking out the windows at uh, over the Tampa Bay uh, skyline and watching uh, fireworks from a hospital floor uh, in the cancer ward. So most people don't realize that leukemia patients uh, are, are, you know, a little bit different than what they call lumps and bumps. Um, you know, a lot of people in various different cancer, uh, they can, I'm not saying it's a relatively normal life, but they can sustain a daily routine of some sort, a lot of them, uh, until it gets really bad, um, where they actually go in for their chemo, maybe once, twice, three times a week, what have you, and then they actually, you know, will go through. Um, leukemia patients, um, we, we typically... I don't say we, but, but they typically um, live in the hospital. Um, I think uh, over the period of time that I was, uh, from the moment I was diagnosed to the moment I was cancer-free, which, which I'll get in that in a second, um, I think we calculated out, out of the hospital for, I think, 45 days, either 43 or 45 days, and the rest of it was in a hospital. I mean, uh, Tampa General Interna uh, Tampa General Hospital in Tampa, Florida was amazing. They actually took a room, made it into an office for me, dropped the T1 line into it. I could do video conferencing with the backdrop of the bay. It was it was they they went a well above and beyond. It was an amazing. I mean, if you had to have an experience in this, it, they made it very uh, uh, very easy to to try to strive to to beat it. You know and um, and I, but I remember one one key factor that my son was four years old, um, and I remember him asking me to make him a promise that I, he that I wouldn't let this cancer take his dad. And so with that, my son and I have that special bond. If you ever hear my son or myself say the words "I promise." it means that we will do everything humanly possible to make sure that that promise is executed um, because it's a pact we made then and have revisited throughout the rest of his 15 additional years that he's been on the planet. So um, I don't make promises that uh, 
I don't believe that we can uh, achieve or, or deliver on. Um, I just, it's not in me now. Um, so, uh, but yeah, it was, it was a very uh, unique experience. Um, uh, I almost bled to death twice. Um, uh, there was uh, uh, a person that, that, that was my girlfriend at the time. Uh, and uh, she, she, if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't be here right now. Um, on two different occasions, um, where she actually took, um, took control and, uh, really, uh, got some people rattled some cages, shall we say. Uh, so, uh, she, uh, but, uh, not many people know that, um, uh, but, but it, if it wasn't for her and, and of course the treatments and everything else that it was doing, but, but it really was, uh, in two different occasions where most people don't realize <clears throat> when you're a leukemia patient, you can cough hard, sneeze hard. Um, you can bump into the corner of a table and because your platelets are so low, you bleed to death. Um, it's, uh, and, and, uh, so it's, it's one of those things where, and if you get a temperature, you're immediately into the hospital again. So, uh, but, um, thank God for Xbox, you know, <laughs> shout out to, uh, Microsoft and Xbox. Uh, because uh, we had a lot of the uh, the uh, everybody from doctors, the head of oncology, the head of uh, urology. Uh, we had tournaments in my cancer uh, floor and in my room, so we had nurses involved. You know, my my goal when I was going through this was to make everybody laugh. It was a way for me to deal with and and uh, those that are close to me know that I have um, uh, dark humor, inappropriate humor. <laughs> pretty much crossing all gamuts, politically incorrect, things of that nature. So if I can make you laugh in one way or the other, I probably try to do it. So, um, but, uh, you know, I was, I was told 18 months, I told, was told it was going to be aggressive rounds of chemo repeatedly. Um, at the end of the 18 months, I was going to have, uh, um, a bone marrow tra uh, transplant. And, um, I was lucky enough to, uh, be cancer free in four months. So, uh, Incredible. I was cancer free, which was, which was, uh, December 12th, or I mean, sorry, December, uh, that was my mother's birthday, uh, tw uh, December 8th, uh, 2004, um, I was cancer free and, um, Dr. Wright and his various, uh, Dr. Fink and, and a few others that were part of their practice back then really couldn't believe that I had, you know, basically done it in, in four months. So uh, I took a vow at that point in time that I said that um, I was going to do everything in my power to make a difference uh, in people's lives and on the planet. And um, I've pretty much strived that for that um, over the last uh, coming up on 16 years. So. That's great. Well, following that difficult time and your years of experience in the construction industry, you recognize that there are some pressing needs when the first responder emergency call management, the disaster relief, humanitarian relief industries. Was there any sort of a, an aha moment or did that realization just sort of percolate and come to you gradually? Um, it was actually, Maria, um, when uh, we were in talks with, uh, with two different countries um, and, and they're going to they're gonna hate me because I always butcher the name of it. It's either Dominica or D Dominica, um, depending on uh, in the Caribbean. Uh, it's a, a unique uh, um, island nation that's on their own, um, and uh, also the Bahamas. So when the when the hurricanes came through, um, 
and Maria came, th- I think it was Maria, Maria came through back then. Uh, we were in talks with uh, the prime minister's office and the, and the uh, secretariat to the prime minister. And uh, he shared with me, um, we, were, we were trying to coordinate relief effort um, to get them uh, drinking water through one of our partners back then, Anheuser-Busch. Uh, in Bev uh, with their program where they actually do their canneries and switch them over to uh, uh, canned drinking water. Um, <clears throat> the problem with it was, is Dominica or Dominica um, was uh, without both their airports. Um, they have a, a north uh, eastern and a, a, a southwestern uh, airport. Um, and both of them had been destroyed or, uh, or it, you know, full of debris and couldn't, you couldn't land. Um, the surrounding islands had, had issues um, with uh, the vessels that were available um, because they had been, you know, most of them had gone through the hurricane as well. Um, so we were unable to get um, the relief that we wanted into uh, the island. And we were communicating back and forth. My, I personally was communicating back and forth with the secretariat. And he kept sending me these links. And they were of uh, two, two young men. Uh, that were natives, uh, born and raised uh, on the island, and they had stolen, uh, I don't want to use the word stolen, they acquired um, two motorcycles that were dirt bikes, and, uh, and one of them used their, their drone, and the other one used his, uh, his MacBook Pro, and they strapped him to the back of the motorcycles, and they went through the island, and they went from village to village to village, and they would send up the drone, uh, they would record where it was with the GPS. Uh, they would they would uh, do a head count of who was available, and they would have these videos time and time again. And they were able to get in and out of places on the island that because they were using motorcycles and the, specifically off road motorcycles, they were able to get to places where no one else could get to. Um, and it was that effort that inspired us um, to do a deep dive on disaster response and to see how many nations use motorcycles um, in their, their relief efforts. Um, and uh, that was the first start. And we started, uh, we started diving into that. And we, we also, so we realized that, um, uh, that there aren't a lot of uh, disaster response uh, teams that are using, um, you know, enduro or on or off-road motorcycles. Um, there's very limited of the motorcycles in, that are manufactured that actually are capable of, of uh, being used in that capacity. Um, there's probably only a handful or two um, that, uh, that really work. Um, we did a full evaluation on brands worldwide, the models within the brands, everything. Um, we've partnered now with, uh, with uh, KTM Husqvarna uh, with a specific type of motorcycle uh, that gives about a 300 plus uh, mile range up to 350 mile range, which is unheard of. Um, so you can, uh, you know, safely get out 150 miles inland uh, and then return back if need be. Uh, we've, we've co-developed it with our, one of our uh, innovation uh, uh, labs that, uh, that was spearheaded by uh, uh, Scott Cameron. Uh, and uh, Kevin Ward, uh, where they that we have uh, Pelican cases that are uh, we can pull the rip cords and throw those off, and and uh, you know we can we can get into places where we can't. Um, one of the things that that inspired us uh, to kind of take that leap was also the fact that um, we were like, oh, we could we could get a bunch of motorcycles in, 
you get a 12 bikes and 14 bikes into the same space as a Humvee. Um, so you could actually send an entire 12 man team out to a disaster site and get them into areas where they couldn't get with a Humvee uh, or a larger vehicle. Um, and, but how do you get those, that team and those motorcycles into a specific area where nobody else can get to? Uh, and one of the things that, uh, that inspired us about this incident uh, that we couldn't get an aircraft, we couldn't get a C-130 into their airports because they, they weren't functional. Um, so uh, I remembered as a kid, um, always uh, loving uh, the, uh, the amphibious aircrafts of, uh, of the years past, of uh, Grumman albatrosses. And uh, we, uh, we started uh, realizing that, you know, if, you were, if we were to get our hands on some of those and actually use those, um, they were very, uh, very unique. Um, even though they've been, they're outdated and what have you, there's nothing like them on the planet. Um, they can they can land on unimproved uh, runways and roads and uh, gravel and grass, and they can uh, land in the water and up to seas of six feet cresting waves and ten foot rolling seas. I wouldn't want to be on them when that's doing that, but but they have that capability. They were designed for that capability. You know, they can carry up to about 30 people and about 8,000 plus uh, pounds of cargo. So that's a lot to get into an area, um, whether you have to land on water or you have to land in, uh, uh, on a uh, unimproved uh, roadway or something of that nature that's a makeshift runway. Um, so we sought after to combine the two, uh, combine the Albatross aircraft as primary aircraft uh, for tip of the spear into disasters based on the fact of what happened in Dominica, uh, of not being able to get to that, that, uh, those people, uh, and then combining the motorcycles, specially built motorcycles within as cargo and teams to actually get into the area, uh, and then be able to deploy those bikes into, uh, go inland, uh, into areas that, uh, that, uh, most cannot. Uh, and then we, we started crafting who would that be and, you know, would they be ex-motorcycle racers, you know, uh, would it be, you know, um, military and what have you or a combination of the two and, and what have you. And, uh, you know, we were lucky enough to, to um, have three things happen very, very quickly. Um, Rob Britt, who's one of our board members and, and uh, our chief uh, strategy officer, um, was, uh, was dialed in at the right place at the right time. And, uh, he teamed up and found, uh, the Barron family and Mike and Dylan Barron, a father and son, uh, team of, uh, second and third generation aviators. Um, they, uh, they had the inspiration enough to, and, and the gall to go after it. And they, they acquired, um, six, uh, I'm sorry, seven, uh, of the forgotten uh, G111s, and um, which were the albatross uh, Grumman albatrosses used for civilian uh, use, and they were they were down in mothballed in Arizona, and they rescued them. Um, they uh, they put it out, you know, hey, look, we've got seven of these birds. You know, we we wanted we were seeking just one of them, uh, you know, but we had an opportunity to save seven of them, so. Um, Rob got a hold of them and uh, convinced them that uh, after they heard our story about why we wanted to use the albatrosses, um, Mike decided not only to donate all seven uh, of the aircraft to our foundation, but also to come on board and, and help us uh, and work with the foundation as well. And uh, one of the things that we, uh, 
uh, Dylan and 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 uh, Mike uh, spoke of was um, they wanted to uh, protect uh, the uh, the flying heritage of these uh, amphibious aircraft, and uh, so you know we we set out to uh, to utilize them and refurb them and things of that nature, and we now have and that led to someone else actually hearing the story and donating their aircraft to us. Um, so we now have eight aircraft uh, that are in the process of. Um, being, uh, it's a long process, but it's a process of being restored and, and brought back to flight ready capabilities so we can start running missions with them. Um, and that we're looking uh, into 2021 to actually have some of the birds in the air that we can start utilizing in that manner um, to start funneling in. And, and uh, that has led us to, you know, down the road, it has led us down the road in which to, uh, you know, capitalize on. Um, the uniqueness of that aircraft and additional assets and things of that nature, um, but all focusing now on on the uh, special operations forces operators. So you know the uh, the civilians would call them Green Berets and and uh, Navy SEALs and Marsoc Marines and and PJs. Para- uh, uh, and uh, combat air traffic controllers and things of that nature. And there's a litany of others that are in that, what they call soft community. Um, and we were lucky enough to have uh, a very distinguished group. Um, and at early on stage while we were doing this, um, be introduced, Rob, once again, Rob Ritz um, had met these guys and they were the original group of ODA 595. Um, which were the SF, the Special Forces Green Beret Unit, that were the first on, well, there were, there were a multitude of them, but they were one of the first uh, on the ground, boots on the ground after 9-11 in Afghanistan. Um, you guys and your, and your viewers and, and listeners may uh, recall a movie called uh, 12 Strong, or, the, um, you know, so 12 Strong, and, and um, there's, a, there's a memorial to that, to that unit um, at uh, Ground Zero. Um, and, uh, we were lucky enough to be introduced to, uh, some of those members and, uh, was lucky enough to be introduced to a gentleman named John Coco, um, who, uh, John was, uh, very influential early on, uh, and kind of helped us. Um, he didn't pull any punches <laughs> to say the least, which I kind of like, uh, he was like, no, nah, that's stupid. Don't do that. You know, Hey, you should be doing this because this will help you do that. And you know, what have you. And. Nobody gives a crap about that. You know, I mean, it was, uh, I remember the first call we had, it was like almost five hours long. Uh, and it was, he was sick as a dog in the Bahamas in a resort. Uh, and his rest of his family was out. I think they were snorkeling or something of that nature. And he was laid up in bed and he just went through like, okay, here's all of the stuff you've got is great, except you need to get rid of this, 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 this. And he helped us focus. Um, and it was, it was because of John that we, we kind of shifted gears in, in one direction, uh, and kind of took that mission and kind of focused it into, to specifically target, uh, as a main concentration of transitioning, uh, soft community operators and support personnel to the soft community, uh, transition them from their, their honorable, uh, service in the military, uh, to their noble service at Motopara. Um, you know, trying trying to um, allow them to keep their MOS um, or their their whatever they did in the military for civilians, um, kind of like their job description. Uh, whatever they did in the military, they would transition into us, and they would do the same with us uh, in that fashion. 
Um, and then also, um, whenever possible, is to try to bring those team members uh, that may have been together in military, and now that they've, you know, either in a group have left the military or uh, over a course of three to five years have all left out, and we can bring those teams back together. It's one of our objectives is to try to bring those teams together. They're very unique, um, <laughs> to say the least. Um, they are uh, they are unlike conventional, conventional military personnel. Um, you know, conventional military is, here's an order execute the order. No questions asked, you know, to the, to the most part. Um, the, the group of soft operators uh, that most, you know, the general public, they see the movies, you know, uh, they read the books, you know, that kind of stuff. They, but when you start to get into, you know, being with them and, and really diving into to what makes them tick and, and what is uh, triggers for them, both positive and negative, things of that nature, uh, you realize that they're taught to um, go without support and they have to think on their feet and they have to assess things from moment by moment and um, either individually or collective as a team um, execute their mission based on at the moment, every moment they're on until they execute it of the situations that arise. And they're, they're free thinkers, you know, a lot of them have beards, you know, <laughs> they're, a lot of them are unconventional. Uh, the joke is we always say that we're, you know, we're the island of the broken toys and we, we love the broken toy, you know, bring us your, your toys, um, you know, and, uh, and there's a home here for you, uh, that type of scenario. Uh, and, um, so with that, it, it, it's, uh, over the, the last couple few years now, we've been able to qu continuously hone it, hone it until, uh, and we'll, we'll always, uh, you know, learn and, and adapt and, and just like they do, they adapt and overcome. We do the, we're, we're challenged. We, we do the same thing. Um, our goal is, uh, is to uh, have three primary bases throughout the world. Uh, we've done everything from a ring radius uh, execution point from uh, uh, the Western Hemisphere, the Central Europe and, and Africa, uh, and Eastern uh, Asia to the Asian Pacific Rim uh, areas where we can get uh, an albatross from a base to, uh, we call it a one hop. If we can get anywhere in that region, you know, Western Hemisphere from Florida, if we can go one hop and be in anywhere we need to, north or south, wherever there's people in need, uh, that's the goal. Uh, to get there within uh, less than 18 hours uh, is the ultimate goal by air and uh, less than 18 days by ship with full support, uh, um, you know, cargo, relief, things of that nature. So with all that said, <clears throat> it almost sounds like we're, you know, created a, you know, paramilitary group, you know, coming in and bringing them out. And, and we're not. Um, some would say that we have a, uh, we kind of, would uh, lean in that that realm, but uh, but not really. Um, uh, what we found was interesting. Um, we thought we were, you know, I love getting these reality checks from life and and the world. You know, where they, you think you have it all figured out, <laughs> you know, and then somebody or some course of action actually then opens your eyes even even wider. Uh, you know, it's it's the uh, the tree in the forest, 
you know, you're too close to the tree, you know, that you got a bark mark on your forehead, you know, and uh, you, you get an opportunity to step back and see a little bit more and you can actually adjust. And um, we, we've done that and, and we've been able to have that happen to us where we've realized that, um, that it's, it's, um, I'm sorry, I, I'm, I'm sitting there, that we can do more than just go out and, and um, help people. Uh, you know, uh, that we, uh, from a disaster uh, relief or a humanitarian relief, uh, we can actually help those that are uh, the most highly trained warriors in the world that when they leave the military, um, what gives them that, that level of challenge, both mentally, physically, um, everything, you know, um, how do they integrate back into society? Well, we we figured that there's a way now that we can we can take their skill sets and we can move them or help guide them and move them into our organization. Well, with that, we realized that we thought we were the, oh, we're going to go out and do all these military-style executed uh, medical relief and things of that nature. And, and when we started uh, interviewing various different NGO nonprofits, you know, that were in this space. And, uh, and there's many great, I mean, there's hundreds and thousands of them all over the world that are fantastic. Uh, what we realized was the world didn't need another Doctors Without Borders. The war- world didn't need another, uh, you know, um, Doctors Missions Network. You know, um, what they needed was someone to assist them um, to be on call when their need was to get to the site and to get them to the site in a timely fashion with the right personnel and the right relief supplies and equipment, but also to make sure that they're safe getting in. Uh, And while they're performing their duties, um, uh, that they're safe and protected uh, in their execution. Uh, And then of course, bringing them back out of uh, an area. Um, Look, if you're going into a disaster site, you're going into harm's way, period. Um, it's, a, uh, it's an eye-opener, even close to our own borders. Uh, we've seen it uh, inside our own borders. Uh, Katrina uh, was a prime example. Andrew was another prime example. Um, we had f- uh, friends and, and relatives in both scenarios, uh, which were in law enforcement and, uh, and fire rescue. And, um, you know, We've had where societal um, structured systems have broken down, uh, you know, and that's here in the United States. So you start going outside the United States and the infrastructure is no, not even close in, in many countries to be as solid as, as our network uh, and our structure in the U.S. So if it can happen here and uh, everyone goes from, you know, the laws and, and your, your normal society, you know, accepted actions and behaviors and things of that nature, and that shifts into survival. We're animals, we're humans, that's what we are, you know, yeah. we go into survival mode. Um, and, um, and it doesn't matter, you know, socioeconomics, it doesn't matter race, religion, uh, trained, untrained, if you're in survival mode, you are trying to survive, period. Um, and that, you know, uh, causes unrest uh, and, and chaos. In, uh, and here in the United States, we, we handle it 
or generally, <laughs> local, <laughs> over the last year or so, it's been a little challenging, but generally we, we have it pretty, pretty locked down. We, we pretty much have it figured out. Um, but the majority of the world um, is, is a little different. And they needed they need someone, and they need a group that has this. You know, they call it TTP. I was, you know, uh, Colonel Dean Franks, one of our key uh, uh, C level individuals, and uh, has has taught me the TTP, which is uh, tactical techniques and procedures. Um, and it all comes down to how are you going to execute in 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 the world of chaos, you know, things of that nature. Um, so. Um, Going into these disaster sites, I think we get a skewed view. Um, we get to see what the press wants us to see or what they're allowed to show us. Um, in many cases, it's what they're allowed to show us. Um, and it's, it's very different. I mean, in, and most people don't realize this, that here, in, even in the Bahamas, uh, the last hurricane that came through the Bahamas that, that, that hit them pretty hard. Uh, Marsh Harbor and, and Freeport and things of that nature. Um, there were volunteers that came in various different organizations that literally, you know, they tapped out. They simply said, I'm a volunteer. I'm not paid to be here. I don't want to be here anymore. And they left because it was, even though that they're first responders, even if the, they were fire rescue or doctors or nurses, um, in some of the cases, they just, it was so overwhelming that they had not seen a, the level of carnage um, that they just simply couldn't handle it. So that's one of the reasons why we don't, we don't accept volunteers um, and, and why we, for us to put, put our team members into harm's way uh, in a disaster site, um, they must be um, if they're in the field operators, they must be military, you know, they, or, or ex-military, you know, veterans. Um, because uh, the majority of your doctors, nurses, and, and everyday civilian society is not um, trained or properly, you know, ca or capable of, of handling what they get to see uh, when they're in that situation. So, um you know, we've, we have capitalized on and, and, and strive uh, to uh, use what the U.S. military and other uh, allied forces and their special, uh, their soft community have trained and taught these individuals uh, to allow uh, us to capitalize and utilize those into a more efficient means in which to uh, basically arrive and and protect and set up order and what they call uh, establish a FOB, uh, a forward operating base, um, uh, securing a beachhead uh, or a dock or an airport that's been destroyed. You know, how do you go in and an air, tra uh, air traffic control tower is down? So it's one of the reasons why we concentrate on uh, having team members that are uh, combat uh, air traffic controllers. You know, so that they can um, fly in, ride in, parachute in, and get and establish uh, situations to help uh, uh, structure, you know, the the amount of relief aircraft that are going to start coming in because it's it's mayhem. I mean, it's it's literally mayhem. You've got NGOs that are coming in from this side of the world and this side of the world. They're coming into a disaster zone. Uh, the government's already been 
hit hard. So the local government's been hit. Um, you know, those are all those individuals that whether they're part of their defense force or their national police force or their rescue and everything else. A lot of times those individuals, their families, their homes have been destroyed as well. So they're caring for their family members or trying to do their job and still care for their family members. Uh, and they're not as well equipped as the United States. So um, it becomes very challenging for, for other countries to do that. So that's one of the reasons why we kind of stay, I don't want to say stay in our lane, but our objective is to um, be very strategic, tip of the spear, um, be able to bring those teams in, set up um, uh, a safe environment for other NGOs to come in uh, and, uh, and continue to do their work. Um, and, uh, and us continue to help coordinate uh, supplies and, and transfer back and forth personnel whenever, whenever possible. So how's that? That's great. No, so, you know, we, we've completely blown through our first break here, and I just want to keep on going because this is fascinating Sorry. stuff. No, 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 please. Oh, I don't need um, a break. You know no, that. No, no, exactly. <laughs> you know, you just mentioned being tip of the spear. You know, how is it that Motopara is able to put together all these pieces of the puzzle when other groups, other NGOs, other governments have been unable to do that? I wouldn't say that they're unable. There are several uh, groups. There's there's a few, less than a handful that are kind of structured the way that we are, um, but uh, specifically utilizing, um, you know, the soft community in the way that they are. Um, but there's some f- phenomenal, um, you know, GSD and a, and a few others uh, that uh, that are out there um, that are doing what we do. Um, and and there's room for, for more, let's just say, um, for that for that uh, scenario. Um, and you know, like GSD has been doing it for, for almost a decade, I think seven years or something of that nature. Uh, and up until recently, a few years ago or a couple of years ago, you know, they weren't even an incorporated nonprofit. They weren't a, uh, uh, an actual foundation. They were uh, a group of, of guys supported by a single individual that said, um, Hey, look, we can go out and, and help, uh, utilize the skill sets that, uh, that Uncle Sam gave you guys, and and uh, we can go out uh, quickly and efficiently and, and help out. So we're we're in, in that world. In that case, we're we're kind of doing the same thing. So um, I don't think that they're they're unable to do it. It's just a matter of of the, it's such a vast and large problem, if that makes sense, when a disaster takes place that. You can't be everything to everyone or everything to every situation. So it really does make more sense to have organizations concentrate on their skill sets and their capabilities uh, and then work in conjunction with others that have other skill sets. And then collectively, um, you can help, uh, you know, organize uh, and implement um, a uh, and try to cut down on the chaos. And, and uh, you know, I mean, look. It's happened in every every disaster, no matter what disaster you're, you're anywhere in the world, um, you have opportunists, right? So where someone is weakened, you have other people that will take advantage of. So, you know, one of our objectives is, is to help mitigate that, you know, um, and, and by helping the other NGOs um, allow them to do their specific tasks and and their missions um unencumbered if that makes sense um whenever possible 
So I don't think it's others have failed or, or have not been able to do, uh, you know, what we're doing. It's just a matter of we're taking a different ap- approach and we're filling a small void. Um, and that void has enough room for others like us um, to help void, uh, to fill it. Um, and as long as, you know, those organizations are, are communicating, then uh, it can be a combined effort. Uh, it's when the other NGOs start butting heads, you know, and you have stronger NGOs, you know, literally commandeering supplies from weaker NGOs and things of that nature, or you have you know, the real thing, gorillas and pirates and things of that nature. I mean, stuff that you hear about on in movies, but it, it's a real thing. I mean, there, there are, you know, factions out there that are going to capitalize on the fact that they can go in and uh, in the chaos, um, go ahead and go shopping, you know, um, for whatever they want or whatever's available, you know, whether it's, you know, drugs or, or, you know, controlled substances to for morphine to, you know, you name it to, uh, to simple supplies, you know, and food. Um, we were told by one, uh, or a couple of NGOs actually, when we were interviewing them that, uh, that in the Bahamas, they were one of the first ones in, um, and they came across three different situations where um, certain island nation pirates uh, came to them and basically one of them, you know, with machetes and AK-47 and stuck one in one woman's chest and said, you know, look, we're going to take all your supplies uh, or we're going to, you know, kill you where you stand. Uh, and literally three separate issues um, tried to take you know, all of their relief supplies um, because they simply weren't capable of, of fending them off in, in that manner. And, and nor at the, because of such an early stage, nor could the defense force of the Bahamas um, do it because there, it was such chaos and everything else. Um, so, but they all, that, that same organization had run into this situation down in, uh, in Latin America where they had brought supplies in they, uh, that's one of the things that we found was the missing kind of link. Uh, and one of the reasons why uh, we've been in talks in partnership with uh, Maersk, um, which is the largest shipping and, and uh, logistics company in the world, um, is, is one of the problems is what we concentrate on. We always say that we're a, a neutral nonprofit NGO um, that provides last mile um, protective uh, um, services, uh, protective logistic services. Um, and and the, one of the examples why we've kind of concentrated on that is because of these stories that we hear from these NGOs. And I mean, they had uh, basically what, what we found is in the world of, of NGOs going into a disaster zone, they're at the mercy of generally the shipping industry, you know, to bring you know, cargo in, um, you know, and supplies because only so much can be brought in via air, right? So you have to bring ships in many times or via truck or rail or something of that nature um, because, you know, everything's about weight with aircraft, right? Uh, and you have such limitations. So, you know, they have told us situations where, um, and, and multiple NGOs have told us this, where they'll go in and they'll uh, grab a uh uh, or they'll, they'll contract and charter a ship and they're at a discounted rate, you know, low to no cost. But then a paying customer comes in and says, hey, I need that cargo ship. And they're paying full rate. So the cargo ship basically goes to the full rate 
customer, meaning that the NGO sits there and waits for the next available. You know, and when you're in an in, when you're in a disaster response standpoint, hours, days, and weeks all count. You know, in in many cases, seconds and minutes. So um, they told us uh, this one particular group I'm, I'm honing in on because they told us so many different stories, horror stories actually, um, where they actually were able to do that. They got a ship, they got their supplies, they got it unloaded at a dock, and two trucks pull up and they say. $38,000 for you to go four miles inland. Pay it or have your supplies rot on the dock. It's that simple. You know, you're at their mercy. Um, there was other uh, incidences where we were told that, um, that they actually pay people to bring their supplies in and their personnel. They get into a jungle or they get in a situation, they kick everybody off the truck have a nice day, take all the supplies and go. And they even paid them, you know, locals. So, I mean, that stuff happens all the time. Um, so that last mile logistics is where it really comes in. Um, it really comes in. If you can get everything to a, to a destination, Puerto Rico is a prime example. You know, you had trucks, you know, um, uh, T-Mobile, Deutsche Telekom brought in, you know, uh, I think the F-250s, um, you know, I think they, they brought in something like 200 of them or something of that nature. They brought in generators. They brought in, you know, there were other situations that have been brought in where they simply didn't have the means to distribute it once they got there, you know, and things of that nature. I mean, T-Mobile did because they were for their own workers and their, and, and their own techs. But, you know, generators, uh, pallets of water that sat in warehouses, you know, because they simply didn't have the capability of taking them to the last mile. You know, things of that nature. Um, so that's what we're we're honed in on um, is is basically that protective last mile logistics and partnering with either um, you know companies like uh, Marsk and I always butcher their name. I'm so sorry, guys, because um, they're going to be listening to this later and we're like, gosh, you can't say our name right. <laughs> so, but they're an amazing group. Uh, Red One Medical, um, several of them out there that are just phenomenal, um, that that are helping us do what we need to do, if that makes sense. Oh, totally. Thank so. you. And with the last three, four minutes of the show here, let's switch over to something that's affecting all of us right now uh, and talk about COVID-19. So right now, Motopower is currently involved in delivering a, a pop-up, tear-down COVID-19 testing system. What exactly does the testing system look like and entail? And can you tell our listeners how it works? Well, um, yeah, it's very, very simple. It's, it's, um, I was quarantined. <laughs> so I went through as, uh, one of the first group to come in through Hillsborough County CDC, uh, tent system, uh, at Raymond James stadium. Uh, and, um, the lines went all the way out into the street and we looked at, I went through that experience and, um, it was time consuming. It took 10 days to get my results. Um, you know, it was very cumbersome. It was not very well efficient uh, or laid out for efficiency and things of that nature. So, um, once again, Rob Britz, uh, from our group, you know, I was on the phone with him while I was quarantined and, um, I said, look, there's gotta be a better way, you know, let's get our team together and let's figure out a better way. Right. So, um, oddly enough, my ex-wife, uh, who I'm very close and very good friends with, um, uh, Susan Kanaka, who owns uh, ADM Exhibits in this, uh, 
displays to, or ADM2 exhibits and displays. They had been doing uh, pop-up tent systems for forever, right? And she had told me about a uh, pathogen-resistant uh, biocube or medical cube that uh, went up and was affixed to these uh, pop-up tents. And I mean, I, I had driven my son's sailing team from all over the state and, uh, you know, and, and whatever. And we always had these pop-up tents, you know, that we would use and, and, you know, for shelter while we were actually bringing the teams out and stuff. So very quick, very efficient, very easy. So what we did was we, we looked at how the flow, and when we first started this, it was geared towards um, first responders. So we looked at jurisdictionally, um, you know, police officers, law enforcement, either have a two-person per squad car or a single person per squad car, you know? So we looked at how could we use the efficiencies of um, bringing the vehicles through a tent structure um, that were all geared on how quickly you could, you could test everybody in the vehicle. So assessing the occupancy rate of a vehicle and then assigning that occupancy, whether it was single occupant, dual occupant, or even up to six occupants for a fire truck. That's how we had designed it. So it became a series of tent systems that were actually staged through um, that literally have designed in them stages so that, you know, we can do 18 simultaneous uh, swabs with multiple vehicles where they're, you know, on single-sided on on the uh, uh, driver's side for single occupants and double-sided on multi-occupant. And that's all assessed by when you pull up what lane you're going to. So uh, we designed the system to be a complete testing site um, of uh, a maximum capability of, I think it's 36 um, simultaneous um, swabs uh, that can take place. Um, but the whole system can be put up, pop up, could, uh, even our cones are pop up. That's hilarious. You know, our, you know, little traffic cones, they all compress down. Everything's about efficiency and weight and everything else, because that's how we think for disaster response, you know. So everything can be loaded in a couple Humvees and brought out and uh, or vehicles, rather. Uh, we just happen to use Humvees. Um, in their trailers, and we pop up in two hours, we can have a full testing site up and running. You know, uh, two hours, we can, less than two hours, we can tear, tear the whole thing down and then move it to another area. It's designed so they can be flexible so that when we have hot zones pop up, um, you know, I'm, I'm currently in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So Lake Charles is two hours drive from here. Um, you know, they got hit twice now. They got hit twice. So they have a sea of several thousand of relief workers that are all uh, over in the, in the FEMA camps over there. So um, they didn't have that situation. So the ability to go over and pop up tents and start testing and things of that nature is designed exactly for that. Um, or if you have a higher concentration or you have an outbreak that, let's say, on a, on a college campus, that we can literally come in very quickly and set up a team uh, and, and do either short-term, you know, regional, you know, or short-term, mid-term, or even long-term structures uh, of testing. So, but we also didn't want to stop there. I don't mind it. I hope you don't mind that I'm going to lead into to the next thing, unless you want to go ahead. Well, we've got about 45 seconds left here. All right. Well, we created the first, with partnership of uh, Integrated Health and TOTUS Medical, we created the first um, mobile was a mobile high complexity laboratory 
um, that is built to a BSL-3 spec. Uh, We are currently validating it here in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and look to uh, start deploying them uh, domestically and internationally as we're already working with several foreign governments and uh, several states and uh, universities. Fantastic. That's great stuff. Eric Nanico with the Motor Para Foundation. Thank you so very much for being with us today. Truly appreciate it. And thank you to our listeners. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. Be sure to tell your friends and family we'll be back next Tuesday, same time and same place with another leader from the world of business, politics, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.